Hello, you're listening to The Black Mentors. Second annual The Black Narrative is Greater Than 28 Days interview special, where we ask, listen, learn, and invest in the knowledge and truth of African Americans from all social economic backgrounds. We also advocate for positive images and narratives of African Americans in all forms of media. I'm your host, Rodney Harmon, and we are joined today by our guest, Felicia Glass. How you doing, Felicia? Hey, how you doing, Rodney? All right, and so? I'm well. I cannot complain. It's Monday morning. Let's get it. Okay. Well, to start off, I appreciate everything you do for the community. I appreciate the conversations I've had with you in the past and the conversations you've had with my sons in the past. So that's a salute to you. I give you your flowers now uh, and much respect. Well, thank you. It's always an honor. Okay. Always an honor. All right. Who is Felicia Glass? Oh, my gosh. Such tough questions early in the morning. Um, you know, my first answer is I am every bit of human, and um, I'm a lover of people. I am a socialite. Um, I love to be surrounded by people. Um, I'm a caregiver and a supporter of people. I'm a cheerleader. Um, to say the least. Um, professionally speaking, I'm probably a Jamaican, Jamaica man, right? They talk about how we hold all these different trades and skills, and um, my profession is social work. My area of expertise is grief work, and I dibble and dabble in a lot of things. So I also teach. I also train. Um, right now I'm adjuncting at Washburn, doing um, some social work classes there and loving every minute of everything that I'm doing. Okay. Where are you from, Felicia? I'm originally from Mississippi, okay. but I've lived in Kansas a long time. Okay. Where are you in Mississippi? Greenville, Mississippi. Greenville, Mississippi. Yeah. We had this talk. We have. My mom's whole family from Greenville, Mississippi. I'm telling you, we're relatives. <laughs> yes, probably. You know, I, I mean, I haven't done the ancestry, but I'm pretty sure we probably are. All right. Well, so, I got somebody working on it right now. We're going to run some names. Okay. Good. <laughs> all right. All right. We're going to um, give you our report back on that part. All right. Yeah. But, yeah. Now, uh, the next question would have been, uh, what do you do? But you've already said, you know, basically you're a grief counselor. What is a grief counselor? So, you know, my, my standard answer is that I'm a conduit of healing for people who are hurting. And so I truly just meet people wherever they are. We understand that people tend to think of grief as only the death of someone, but we also lose things and, and positions in our lives. And um, all of that is important to allow people to heal from as well. Okay. What, uh, where does a grief counselor, who does a grief counselor turn to when they are I'm not going to lie to you. I typically turn to my therapist because I also have a therapist, but I also am surrounded by people who love me unconditionally. So I have an amazing spouse, an amazing best friend. I have so, like an amazing group of women who support me that I truly believe I can lean in on. And so often you'll hear me say, lean in, lean in. There are really people in our circle all the time who just need us to say, I need you. Now, you grew up in Mississippi, you said? I did. I spent the, my early childhood years in Mississippi, and I moved here when I was about 11 permanently. Okay. So where did you go to school when you moved here? Oh, I went to Lafayette. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I did one like a half a year at Belvoir Elementary as well when I, my mom first moved here. But I had to go back to Mississippi. But, um, yeah, I went to Lafayette, um, Chase, Eisenhower, and Highland Park. What made your mother move here? You know what? Um, I had a cousin whose husband was in the military, Mm -hmm. and he actually is my cousin as well. But they moved here, and it was kind of like our whole family eventually just kind of migrated here, um, getting out of the South, wanting better for their family. What, what did you notice the big difference between when you first moved here at 11 from Mississippi, Greenville, especially Greenville, to Topeka? Um, so I always say I was a kid. So I think how we see things can be very different than how adults in our lives see them or how they may really be. Um, but my first experience that I genuinely recall is actually being in the classroom with white kids. Um, I don't recall a lot of that in Greenville. Like, the kids in my neighborhood were black. Um, We didn't go to certain areas. They didn't cross into certain areas. Um, So I really remember just kind of being exposed to other cultures moving to Topeka um, and being friends with kids who were from every race and nationality. Okay. All right. How quickly did you make friends with other nationalities? Listen, probably really easy because I'm a, I'm a magnet for people. Yes. I love people. So I, I think I've always been that person, right? Um, some people would say I was a bully. I just would tell people, just don't mess with me and we good. Yeah. But really, I just love people. So, and I think I always have. Okay. Uh, take us through your high school years. You know, were you involved in any activities in high school? Yeah. Um, so my, my greatest memory of high school is transitioning from middle school into high school. My mom required me to do at least one semester of ROTC. Um, I was a knucklehead. I was out there running the streets and doing things that everybody else was doing. Um, but my mom said that she wanted me to try something different. And, and the recruiter from Highland Park, um, from the ROTC program, he just got in my mom's ear and was like, I see something great in her. She's amazing. And my mom, you know, we've heard these stories all our lives, right? But he was like, we got to pull her in. We got to pull her away from the crowd. And I did that one semester, and I was committed for four years. So ROTC was definitely the game changer for my life. Um, I learned how to use my leadership skills in ROTC. Um, When I graduated, I was deputy commander. So um, learning different things like drill team. Um, was amazing to me. My my squad was the first team to do a completely blind drill um, with weapons, and I loved every minute of that. Um, helping people become better people, I think, is where that started um, because that was my journey. It was a, it truly was the experience that helped me to see that I could be anything I truly desired to be. Even though I'd heard those messages my whole life, you know, my great grandmother woke me up every day with. You will not be a dummy, will you? It wasn't a statement, but it was a statement, right? It it was this divine intervention of this is who you're going to be. I did drill team, ROTC, um, and dance team. So, you know, the dance team was um, something I tried different on my senior year, um, which actually led to a, a cheerleading scholarship later for me in college. Okay. All right. Now, college, where'd you go to college at? I started at McPherson, 
Um, so I did my freshman year at McPherson as a bulldog. Um, amazing experience. Some some rough stuff, but overall a really good experience for me. Um, transferred back, went to Washburn, graduated from the um, social work program there. Okay. What do you mean by rough stuff at McPherson? Oh gosh, um, being in this, in places where you don't have access to things that are necessary for your everyday living. So I, my mom had to ship me hair products. Um, I couldn't get a relaxer there. There weren't stylists who could do my hair there. Um, so skincare products. Um, I've, I had a couple of racial interactions, um, like the Ku Klux Klan doing a march on Martin Luther King Day. Um, just some eye-opening experiences, like, you know, like, Living in Mississippi, I feel like I was sheltered because I just had community, you know. Yeah. Growing up in a place where everybody on the block was relatives, and if they weren't relatives, they had permission to be a relative, right? Um, walking freely through community. Um, coming to Kansas, I think I still had a lot of that. I was just exposed in a different way to everything. But in Kansas, I, I would say in McPherson is where I experienced my first true um Racial, divide. yeah, racial violence. Or, um, no, I meant racial divide. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and it, it it was interesting because where my peers who were are predominantly, you know, it's a predominantly white institution. So yeah. where my peers may not have experienced it or heard it or been present, I've been told that didn't happen, right? Because I've been in spaces where other students were there with me at the same time. And I'm like, oh, yeah. It happened. My roommate and I were walking to Walmart and having someone yell out the window, go back to where you came from, you nig. And you're just kind of like, what? Who are you talking to? Like all the anger and frustration at the same time, you are cowarding, so to speak, because you're in this place and you're alone. And so you don't know who your defenders will be, who will step up for you, who's going to protect you. Um, and that actually was a determining factor for me to leave McPherson was that one experience. Okay. How much does that play into people's lives when they go through experiences like that? Uh, with the background that you have, how much do you think that plays into people's lives? And if it didn't happen to them, but it was told by their parents it happened to them, how much do you think that plays into their life? You know, the degree of separation is important, and I think – I think when we experience racial traumas for ourselves, they have a deeper impact. Um, I I can speak to some of the experiences my relatives have had, mm-hmm. but it's different to hear it and you're like your heart is broken that they experienced it. And to some degree, you want to think we've overcome so far. We've come so far that that you shouldn't be personally experiencing those same same types of things. But we absolutely are. Um, the impact for me, I can't speak for other people's impact, but I think that we definitely are more guarded. Um, we are definitely on edge in certain places in certain spaces. Um, no matter how hard we try, we're consciously aware that these little things that people say, little things that people do, you know, it's, it's walking through a store with someone who is not the same race as you and watching people gravitate to them and ignore you. Um, it, it could be something that other people may think are small slights, but those things definitely impact you. Um, I'm a, in a position now where 
I'm truly aware that my presence deserves recognition. And so when I walk into stores and people don't greet me, I absolutely do not spend my money in their stores because they greet everyone else. They being customer service um, representatives, you greet everyone that walks in your door. I deserve to be greeted as well. And I am now in a position where I demand people respect me, right? Like I don't have to be loud and obnoxious to get your respect, but I also don't have to spend my dollars in places where people will not honor me as an individual within their, in their spaces. So when people say, just get over it, you know, or forget about it, or, you know, uh, oh, that was just, that was in your past. When can you get past it? In the field that you work in, how long, what's the average for a person to get past and, and not even get past, but there's stuff that triggers people. You know, they might be past something, but there might be just that one trigger that, takes them back to that spot, mm-hmm. you know. What uh, What do you say to the people that tell people to get over it? I say walk in their shoes, okay. truly. Like, um, regardless of the trauma, so on any spectrum, yes. those experiences have an imprint in a person's life. And we have to remember that how a situation impacts me may not impact you the same but it absolutely will at some point in our life have a place where we are possibly triggered, um, creates change, um, changes our viewpoint um, in life. And so although we would love to be able to say, ah, that's in the past, the reality is, is that that particular situation or the compilation of multiple situations throughout life just continue, it's like an open wound. It just continues to open it up. And until our society changes and, and we are no longer being impacted by egregious activities of others, interactions, whatever they may be, we will always deal with those things that we have experienced in our past. I'll never forget being in places where someone, we're walking literally um, out by the mall at Zona Rosa, walking, going to our cars, and some guys pull up, driving real fast, slow down, spit out the window, and call me an N-word as I walk minding my own business. Yep. Unprovoked, mind my own business, go my own way. I'll never forget it. So when cars speed past me or I hear a car rev, I'm always taken back to that very moment. Okay, we're going to get a little bit further in your life. Okay. You come back to Washburn. Uh, do you start right away, or do you take a semester off? or how do Oh, you no, work? I started right away. Okay. Yep, went right into the next semester. No gap years. They, they, we didn't have gap years. It was like, you go to school. <laughs> yeah, you go to school. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I went to the military and stuff, and so let's go back to that part. Mm-hmm. Finishing ROTC uh, in high school. Did you ever have a feeling that you might be in the military or ever wanted to go in the military? So I absolutely wanted to go in the military. And I believe fear is why I didn't. I never went into the military. I would give it to fear, just the fear of the unknown. Um, not necessarily that I couldn't be successful there, mm-hmm. but just fear of unknown. No one really talking me through um, I think ROTC did a good job of prepping us and preparing us for, you know, the experience. 
So I really can't give like a pinpoint exactly what happened that I never that I never entered the military. Your family's pretty close though. Mm-hmm. So what you think it might have been the fact that you would have been alone? Um, very possible, very possible. Um, I think that going to McPherson. I think I did well there in terms of being away from people, but I called home a lot. I definitely wanted to be with my mom. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Finished college. What is your first job after college? Um, My first job after college was working at Hillhaven, which was a nursing home here at the time, um, in the social work department. And so I helped – um, the elderly adjust to nursing home living, doing interviews, helping families adjust, doing financial assessments, um, that kind of stuff. It's interesting that you ask about that because it makes me remember Hillhaven is actually my mom married a gentleman who later became my stepdad. And um, my parents were together 25 years, but I met my dad's father in that nursing home and went home and told my dad, I met your dad today. And he was like, there's no way. They had been estranged for years. Mm. And in that job is where I reunited my dad and his father. And my parents actually later supported him, um, like saw him through community, back into the community where he later passed away. But being in that position allowed me to reconnect my family in that way. Divine, Thank you for that. Divine intervention. <laughs> divine intervention, yeah. Right spot, right place right time absolutely okay how did that feel I know how you're expressing it now but when you initially start talking to your grandpa how did that what made you relate that that was your dad's dad in an, in the intake assessment you're asking them about their children okay and so he was giving the names, and as he gave the names of my aunt, and I, it was just like, okay, that's just one name, right? But when you get to three names, and then he finally says your dad's name, and I literally am in awe in pause, and I say, excuse me, because I have to, you know, there's this confidentialities that have to take place. And I actually excused myself to go share with my supervisor that I believe that he is my grandfather. Um, and so... Um, she took over the interviews from there so that I could then have this personal interaction with him to share with him that I was the stepdaughter of his son and got permission to share with my dad that he was there. And What, yeah. was, what was that reunion when you first got them together? Um, amazing, right? So my dad was totally in awe. Um, and, of course, then his siblings. So they all got to reunite with their dad. And so... For me, life-changing. For them, life-changing as well, I would say. Do you know what was – did the dad go off to the military or something? Or what no, I think the kids them? just moved. Oh, okay. You know, like they just – I don't know what their triggering event was, uh-huh. but I know that somehow they got separated or disconnected in some way, and he was here in Kansas, and they didn't know he was here in Kansas. Is that the first and only time you've ever been a vessel between the two? Two different groups that you connected them? Uh, in a working position, probably. Probably. What about on a personal level? Um, on a personal level, more recently, just um, being a member of certain groups. So I participate um, in this one group, and I invited the, some friends to go hang out. 
And while we were having dinner, two of my friends at the table um, were talking, we were talking ancestry, family history, and they connected realizing that they were relatives. They had never met before. Um, and they were sitting at the table and they're like third or fourth cousins. Um, so those experiences are always amazing for me. Have you read that book, Six Degrees of Separation? I have. Okay. And it's absolutely the truth. Is it? <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> All right. Okay. So after your first job and after your uh, divine intervention, how long do you stay? Well, not after. How long do you stay at that position? Um, I probably worked at Hillhaven for about a year. Um, I later moved on and worked at Jayhawk Area Agency on Aging, um, which was a great transition for me. I loved working there. I probably stayed there about a year before going on to graduate school. Okay. Now, do you work during graduate school? No, absolutely not. Okay. So I attended uh, Tulane University of New Orleans, and I participated in the Accelerated Program. So it was a 10-month um, graduate program. So there was no working was allowed as part of your contract. Um, you cannot work while you're there because you're doing internship and full caseload of coursework. Okay. All right. Um, sorry about that. You're fine. You finished school. Now what is your so first job <laughs> after that? School? So after uh, graduating from Tulane, my first job happens to be at, let's see, I want to say I worked at Head Start, um, and I worked there very temporarily because when I um, came home, we had major life crisis happening, um, and my mom had a stroke right after I graduated high school. My brother died while, I'm sorry, my brother passed away while I was in grad school, and several months later, my mom had a massive stroke just days after me returning here. So I worked... So I, I literally was getting a job while my mom was having this medical emergency. And I later found out I was pregnant, like, in the same week. And so my pregnancy was very advanced, lots of complications with the twins. And I ended up losing my job because I got put on bed rest and later had those twins severely preemie. Um, so I didn't stay at Head Start very long. And my next transition was to uh, TFI. No, KCSL, Kansas Children's Service League, doing case management work. Okay. And it was an amazing journey there as well. Okay. So during that, what is about a one year period when all this happened? Yeah. Man, what, what, uh, what actions do you take to try to get help? <laughs> um, let's see. So no, no assistance. I, I actually didn't seek out any help um, for my mental health during this transition. So we're talking about um, October. My brother passes away. I graduate in December. My mom has a stroke in December. I find out I'm pregnant in December. Um, my mom literally is in rehab for my entire pregnancy because I end up delivering those twins in May. And um, I, I, I didn't. I can be honest and say I didn't look for supports. Um, so family was all I had. And truly, uh, my church family at the time were everything. They literally stepped up and supported. At one point, I did try to seek out help from DCF because I was moving into my own place, you know, just reestablishing myself here in Topeka. Um, and I'll be honest, it was one of the worst experiences I've ever had. Um, it is the place where I feel like I, I truly understood the, the statement of dignity and worth of a person and how we uphold that. Um, I had a, a, 
employee there tell me that if a black woman act like she had a degree and got a job, maybe she wouldn't need our assistance. And I felt like dirt on the bottom of her shoe. And even more so, um, it was 10 times worse because it was another African-American woman speaking to me that way. Um, here I was, a college graduate, first generation, first generation high school graduate, um, have a master's degree. I'm literally 25. I, I believe that I've been a success in every way. Um, and someone spoke to me that way. And um, literally, my application didn't get processed in time. So I was back at work before the application ever got processed. So I had my twins May 11th. I returned to work June 1st. Um, my twins were in the hospital 99 and 106 days. And um, definitely the most traumatic six months to, I'm going to say, nine months of my life. Um, and I literally did not reach out and get help until my twins were probably about one when I felt like my life was falling to pieces. Um, falling to pieces in that um, screaming and yelling at my husband for no reason, um, literally getting out of cars and having panic attacks, knowing what they are, but knowing that black people don't go get help, right? Yeah. Um, and I finally just decided one day that my family deserved better. And most importantly, I deserved better. And so seeking help was the greatest change I've, I could have ever made in my life to help me deal with, one, the loss of my brother, who was the love of my life at that time in my life, um, having severely preemie children, having a mom that my children would never know. My, my children will never know the mom I once had because of the stroke that she had. But my mom had that stroke because of heart heartbreak, and I, yeah. I recognize that. Um, so my, my children never having a grandma who could read a book to them, um, buying my mom the same educational toys I was buying my children, all of that was very traumatic. And being strong black woman that I was and the cape that we say we wear, um, I believed I had to do that on my own. Excuse me. I believed I had to do that on my own. And... The reality is I did not have to do that on my own. So today I stand in a message that says, help, get help. There's nothing wrong with getting help. You don't have to be alone. You do not have to hurt. Mental health um, professionals are there to support you. They're there to help you. They're, help. They're there to encourage you. Thank you. Um, excuse me. Um, they're there to help. Excuse me. They're there to help you rebuild your life. Right. Um, there are so many of us who are broken, who are hurt, who truly believe that we have to do this thing on our own. And in reality, there's someone very close to you who's willing to go to that first therapy appointment with you. There's someone who's saying, whether it's a social media message saying there's a therapist available or get help, whatever it is, we have to learn how to let go of the cape. We have to learn how to let go of doing everything on our own and recognize that we are stronger together than we are apart, and that includes our mental health. So for me, getting help um, was one of the greatest transitions I could have ever made for me, but also for my family. Okay. Now that we're in that situation, before we forget, we'll do it again toward the end. Mm -hmm. How does people reach out to you? You know, a lot of times people find me just because they put my name in Facebook or they put my name in Google. Okay. And I'll be honest, the easiest way is Google. But I'm going to tell you, 
785-246-7703. That's my cell phone number at work. Um, you can reach me at, like, literally type in the grief counselor, and bam, there I am. Um, I have an office located downtown in the Columbia building um, on the fourth floor. Um, but literally inbox me, message me. I'm always honored when people are going through something and they just know that I'm available. And I have absolutely, I may not be the therapist for you, but I have absolutely no problem helping you find the right therapist. Okay. All right. So we're into the twins, five years old. How do you celebrate that? The twins being five, oh, <laughs> we do everything big, right? Yeah. So people that know me know that, you know, birthdays are big. We celebrate everything. And I believe the losing my brother the way that I did at 15 in his sleep is the reason why I celebrate the way that I do. Um, so I would probably say I can't remember their fifth birthday, but I definitely know there was a party, yeah. there was cake, um, and there was family and friends. Um, I always remember their first birthday because we had like 100 people show up for their first birthday. Um, but definitely every birthday is a celebration, and it always includes a family dinner. So there's a celebration with everyone um, who loves them, who loves me. But there's always that intimate moment with family because at the end of the day, if they never walk away with anything else that their mom has taught them, I want them to remember that family should always come first. Okay. All right. Now, you said they were preemies, correct? Yes. Okay. How and how long did they stay in the hospital? You say? 99 and 106 days. So they were 24 weekers when they were born. So they still had lots of weeks left inside of me that they should have been 16 weeks there. Um, so they spent the rest of that time and some additional time in the NICU. Okay. Do you think they were stressed that you had them early? Or? Um, so having them early was completely due to having a weak cervix, carrying okay. two babies at one time can be stressful and creates high risk situation um, for most women. So I'm sure stress probably paid, played a part, um, but I'm, I'm so grateful that God saw fit to keep them. Okay. Now, do you only have the twins? No, I have okay. a third baby too. Yep. Okay. She's, her name is John A. Um, she is definitely a spitfire, but she came along two years later and um, I had an absolutely healthy and normal pregnancy with her. So when do you decide to take your practice or do open your own practice? Opening my own practice was a total fluke, right? Okay. So I had actually lost my job. I had actually been terminated from a job twice, back to back, um, both of which were not my own fault. And for, for legal reasons, I can't disclose all of that. Okay. But what I will say is they were definitely motivation. So... Um, my kids were probably three at the time, three and one or somewhere around there. And um, I was sitting at home and I was like, I need to make money. I cannot, I'm not a person that just wants to be kept. And even though my, my, my spouse at the time had his own shop and was doing well and definitely could support us, I wanted to contribute. Um, so I created what's called a continuing education course, a class um, that's designed for other social workers to help them maintain their social work license. I rented space at the what's called the National Association of Social Work, the Kansas office here in Topeka, um, rented a space from them and offered a class. I made $500 in that class. And in that class was a gentleman by the name of Charles Vickers, 
And at the end of our session, he came up to me and he said, why are you not doing therapy? You are amazing. Why are you not doing therapy? And I just responded to him, it's too expensive to do supervision. Supervision um, are the required hours for social workers before they can become licensed clinically. And you need 3,000 of them. And uh, at $100 a pop, I couldn't afford that. Um, and he offered me a significantly uh, reduced rate to do my supervision. He had a space that he would allow me to rent. And uh, we rented that space for me um, on my 30th birthday. And that's how private practice evolved, literally, like, psh, out of nowhere. Okay. How, how hard is it when you first opened your own? Did you, un okay, did you understand the business aspect of opening? Absolutely not. Okay. Absolutely not. So what he did provide me was a space and supervision, but I got absolutely no instructions around how to run a business, taxes, all of that stuff. And I'm 16 years out, and I'm still learning. I'm still figuring a lot of that out. Um, so I often will tell people now in reflection as I do supervision for other supervisees, um, I tell them, keep your day job. Keep your day job until you figure out all of the logistics. And I point them to places like Greater Topeka and the Washburn Small Business um, Program. Like I truly try to get people connected to community resources that can help them learn business aspects of running a business. A lot of times we have skill, and I'm someone who will honestly say, I have skill, but I absolutely did not have, and I still don't consider myself to be an expert at business operation, and I would strongly have wanted that. That is the one thing that would have changed how business works for me now. Okay. All right. How did it feel your first year in business? Did it take off, or did it, how slow was it, or? Absolutely. So um, slow for me was 30 days. But in my first 30 days, I was at full capacity. So in my first 30 days, I gained 30 clients, which is really above max. Someone doing reasonable uh, clinical work should average between 25, 20 to 25 clients a week, probably shouldn't do more than that. Um, but I was at 30 clients at the end of my first uh, month. And I can honestly say I've consistently remained full or near capacity. Um, the most I've had are maybe five openings at once. Um, we often go through that shift during the holiday time. People just kind of drop off, fall off. Mm -hmm. But at the beginning of the year, they fill right back in. So um, honestly, I can say that Topeka has been great to me in word of mouth. People know who I am, and they trust in the work that I do. And I can honestly say that I would not be the success in practice that I am if it weren't for people truly believing in me and supporting me. Okay. So most of your customers come or clients come from word of mouth? Then? Always, yep. You never had to advertise? I've never advertised. So the most advertising I've done is making appearances on the red couch, and they, for me, weren't advertising. They were really about education um, in the community and communicate that way. Yes, um, yes. But no real advertisement. I did an article once um, in Topeka Capital Journal celebrating 10 years of service, and that's it. I've, I've never formally advertised my practice. <laughs> that is God. Oh, yes, exactly. <laughs> now, there's a, there's a term where people say you can either grow slow, or in or grow not grow at all, and then go out of business, or grow too fast and go out of business. Mm -hmm. Have you ever thought that you were growing too fast? Um, that it just became overwhelming to you. 
No. Okay. I think I'm I think I'm really good at I always say that one of my greatest strengths is boundaries. Okay. Um so I absolutely will not do something that I can't do or if I'm not in, interested or invested in doing. Okay. Um so I'm really good at capping, like setting my schedule. Um these are my office hours, not checking email on the weekends and responding to people. When people call on my off days, I might pick up a call that I don't recognize and um I'm really good at saying, "Hey, um, today's my off day. Can I get back to you on Tuesday? Um, because I only do clinical hours Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Yeah. And actually taking the time to let people know that. And so I think boundaries have definitely helped me remain true to what I could offer to the community. Okay. Now you say you're married? I am married. Okay. Where did you meet your spouse? <laughs> He's embarrassing me here. Um, actually, my my current spouse, she worked at a place called uh, Clarence Kelly, and it was a, a youth detention center that we had here in Topeka. It doesn't exist here anymore, but I was a trainer for the company, so they contracted with me to come in and train their staff, and my wife stalked me in that agency, so I would come, and she would make light conversation, um, but we met there. Um, she... So in some ways, she was a coworker, but not a formal coworker, right? But yeah, that's how we met. How long did y'all date before you got married? <laughs> Let's see. So let her tell it too long. Um, okay. Actually, she pursued me for about six months before I said yes to a date. Um, but after I said yes, we dated a year and a half, seven months, a year and seven months, and then we got married. Okay. She proposed, or did you propose? Uh, she proposed, yes, she proposed. I always tell her, I, never, I don't think I got a formal uh, proposal. I think I got a ring, and she was like, I know you're going to be my wife, and that was the end of it, right? Okay. And that actually came 30 days into dating. So, oh, yes, okay. yes. But, yeah, we ran away to Vegas and got married and had a big public wedding later. Okay. All right. How long have you been together now? We have been together this June. It'll be 10 years, and we've been married eight years come April. Congratulations. Thank you. Okay. Now, how hard was that in the public's eye? Did y'all ever go to places that, because, you know, during the pandemic when the whole thing came out about they only going to serve certain people that was uh, in a monogamous relationship and, you know, just certain stuff, especially in Colorado, I think it was mainly in Colorado where they had to go to court. Have you ever ran into situations like that in Kansas City, anywhere in the country? Mm, I'm not going to say, we have never been denied service because of being a lesbian couple, no. Um, I think the community, people that knew me really struggled with me being in a relationship with a woman um, because it just didn't match up to who they thought I was. But they didn't know but, you, though. They, yeah, right? You know what I'm saying? It's like they, you, that part, Rodney, that part. So um, people who truly know me know that I love people. Yes. And I think it's important. So I hear people say, well, they chose to be gay, or people say they were born gay or whatever. I am someone who chose a partner, yeah. and I chose love. My wife loved me. Like, she courted me like I know my grandmother was courted, right? Or my great-grandmother was courted. She opened doors for me. She took me out on dates. She purchased things. You know, she, she made mixtapes for me, or excuse me, 
mixed CDs because they weren't tapes, (laughs) right? But she pulled out all the stops, right? And she made me fall in love with the person that she was and the person that she is. And that's why I married my wife. For no other reason, For it it wasn't about being a part of a a certain crowd or Mm -hmm. breaking the rules or upsetting people's lives. I chose what was best for me. And to be loved, like truly loved, unconditionally. I, I know people don't get it sometimes, but the reality is is to have someone who in my worst of worst days that will pick me up, that will love on me, that will inspire me and encourage me when my head is down and I'm trying to get new certificates, who will be like, okay, I'm setting an alarm. You need to work from this time to that time because she wants to see me excel. That's love. And we can spend our entire life trying to please people. But at the end of the day, if I can't look myself in the mirror and be okay with who I am, I would have a problem. I absolutely love that I chose the love of my life. And it just happens to be in someone whose name is Portia Glass. I love that woman because she loves me. So what? how hard was those conversations with your friends that thought they knew you you know, but the friends that truly knew me knew. Okay. The people who had an expectation of me didn't know. Okay. The hardest transition was church. Um, so much so that I no longer attend that church. Um, and that probably was the most heartbreaking experience that I had. It took me until last year, and so we've been together 10 years. So it took me about nine years to really deal with the church hurt that came with choosing my wife. Mm-hmm. But I'm free, of the, I'm free of that now and recognize that this love story is between she and I and me and God. And no one has to answer for me but me. Yeah. And so that church hurt was the worst hurt of all of the, the conversations that I've had. Um, I had a couple of relatives who inboxed me or said to my face that the way I was going to hell, and I have a couple of cousins, or at least one cousin who still doesn't interact with me to this day because I chose to be with my wife. And if that makes her life great, then great. But I would never silence the love that I needed to experience or that I experienced for the sake of someone else. I am very pleased with um, those who chose to support and love me because those were really my people. And those that chose to part ways with me, as long as they can rest at night, I'm okay with that too. Now you said something in there where you said friends and then you said uh, people that expected stuff of you. Mm -hmm. What is the difference? So uh, friends... For me, I don't use the word lightly. So friends are people that I trust um, with various areas in my life. So um, you are someone that I call friend. I know that when you and I interact with each other, it's going to be genuine. It's going to be true. And what's shared between you and I are going to stay between you and I. Um, People who expect things of me are people who are acquaintances and they have an idea of who Felicia is but they've probably truly never had an intimate conversation with me or intimate experiences where we consider each other friends both ways. 
So I think there are people that consider me their friend because their word friend means something different, where mine is very much more intimate and close. So there are very few people that I call friend, but I have some. Now you, uh, I know you're involved with a couple of different organizations. What made you get involved with certain organizations, and what makes you be an advocate to the stuff that you're an advocate for? So, the 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 organizations that you publicly see me a part of, um, I can honestly say I chose for sisterhood first. Um, sisterhood because I love connection. I love being in spaces where I have the opportunity to build other women. So it's not that I'm wanting something from them, but I want the ability to give something away. And for me, genuine experiences between women where we are lifting each other up and encouraging each other comes far and few in between. And I want to be a part of some organizations that do that. The other part for me is service, being able to find myself in spaces where the things that we do aren't just lip service, but they actually produce something um, greater for the next generation. So organizations that have a commitment to the youth is very important to me because the women who influence, women and men who influenced my life were people who always gave to the youth. They were active in community. They were active in serving um, in larger ways than just their, their little box right? They, they gave in big ways. And so the organizations that you see me publicly represent or co- are connected with are organizations that I truly believe align with my personal mission, which is to leave life better for the next generation than it was for me. Okay. All right. Now, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like our listeners to know about you? Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I think it's, it's always a great opportunity when I can share myself with people. Um, so I, I appreciate the opportunity. I think they've learned a lot about me today, maybe some things they didn't know. Um, and I think it's just also important to, to remind people that I am always available. So whether you, um, are someone who watches me from afar or someone who watches me up close, I want you to know that I'm always available to point you in the right direction, to guide you, to encourage you, to say a kind word, because I believe that kindness is the one thing we can give away that doesn't cost us anything. We can always encourage somebody. When you give away kindness, does it take anything away from you? Absolutely not. That people don't understand. Not a thing, no. It's actually one of the most um, fulfilling things that I have in my life is if I can look back on my day and see where I've encouraged someone, Um, where I gave someone even a moment of extra strength. Um, It's already impacted my day. What would you say to a person that wants to reach out to a therapist but don't want the stigma of being considered crazy or needing help or stupid or whatever? The one thing I'd say is that whatever your struggle is, I need you to remember that it's a medical issue. If we can go in and see our medical physicians, we should definitely remember that mental health is a medical issue. You are not your disease. There is no stigma attached to disease. It's about being healthy. So if there is ever 
a time for us to um, look outside of all the things people say about if you have this disease or that disease. You know, um, at one point, HIV was scary. HIV is no longer scary to people. At one point, and some, somebody just responded, it's scary to me. Yeah. But scary means we're not educated about it, right? right? Um, when we are educated and informed, we don't have to be scared. So this is a time for us to connect and find the resources that are available to us freely. Like literally, there's so much information out here. Um, most people have insurance and aren't using it to get the benefits. Um, use those benefits you're paying for. The reality is, is mental health helps. And if it can help you be all of who you desire to be and a healthier version of you, why not? Okay. How many, uh, some people would say it don't matter, but I, I think it does to a certain extent. How many African-American therapists are there in the local area, meaning Topeka, Lawrence, Manhattan? Oh, listen, I think it's important for people to hear there's more than a few. So there's more than the five that you see often. Okay. Um, so, and I say five because I can think of five that we see often, right? Yes. But the idea is there's an entire practice in Manhattan that is, um, I believe they're called 365 Therapy or 365 Virtual. I can't remember the actual name, but the whole practice is of clinicians of color. And we forget that, or they're not as well advertised. And so I think it's important for people to know that there are um, – our clinicians out here, they're just not sitting in your face all the time. Um, Topeka has at least 20 African-American or other uh, cultures of color that we're represented. I think we're out here. I think we may not do as well of a job advertising that we're here because, again, a lot of us are probably operating under word of mouth. Um, but we are here, and there are Clinicians of Color in Lawrence, there's a, a, a gentleman by the name of Reggie Jackson who owns a private practice out there that has multiple clinicians of all races. Um, so we're out here. We're doing the work. We're available to you. And if you're having a hard time finding someone of color, ask. Um, if you call your insurance companies, and people don't realize this, if you call your insurance company and you ask them to find you a list of clinicians of color, they are there. You just have to be specific about what you want. Okay. All right. You mentioned Reggie Jackson. We're going to have him on. Yeah, he's, he's a great he's, guy. Yeah, he's scheduled to be on here. I can't remember what day, but he is scheduled to be on here. Yeah, that's my buddy. Yeah. That's my buddy. Yeah, I think you referred him to me before when we did the uh, salute to the Million Man March. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah, he is a good guy. Okay. So, uh, Normally, when you give me a chance, I'm going to jump off the mic real quick. Okay. We have you read cards. We okay. We give you some cards to shuffle. You'll pick out three cards. You'll read the question, and you'll give the answer. Okay. Give Let's do it. One second. <laughs> oh, interview deck. Okay. What, what am I walking into here? All right, guys, let's see. All right, pick out three cards. Well, you already know I'm going to go with that blue card. What does blue represent to you? I'm a Zeta, so, right. you know, <laughs> blue is everything. Yeah. And I'll, just for the fun of it, I'll go with a red and white, too. 
All right, first card. What is the worst dream you've ever had? Um, actually, I would probably say the dreams prior to my brother passing away for several months, I kept having dreams of myself dying. And uh, to lose him being the person that's closest to me in the world, it made sense afterwards, but definitely the worst dream I've ever had. Um, Share your morning or nightly routine. Um, My morning routine starts with um, prayer. Um, On a warmer day, watching the sunrise. Um, And because it was Monday, Uh, Today, it was making dinner for my wife so that she could take it with her to work because we're both working all day. Um, My nightly routine, I would probably say the one thing that's consistent that everybody knows is that I like to watch the sunset. So that's out. Does your house face the sunset? It does. My deck does, yes. Share what you do if you won the lottery. Listen. I declare, so you're, I'm going on record because it's publicly stated, I declare that I am a debt-free multimillionaire. So I don't know if it's going to be by the lottery, but what I do know is that I would be debt-free, and everything else from there is a guess. Okay. All right. Now, are you helping? How much are you starting a nonprofit to help people once you do your? I would absolutely own and operate a grief center that is freestanding of a hospice in Topeka. Okay. Now there's uh, mental health issues. Go back to that real mm-hmm. quick. For adults, it's really hard, but for the kids, there's really, it's a, it's a lot harder to find institutions that will be willing to let kids come and stay overnight. Absolutely. It's one of the greatest deficits we have. Losing the miniger, losing minigers took a lot of dollars away from our city. And uh, people don't understand the impact. And we know that minigers served all populations of people. Yeah. Um, but we just have gotten away from institutionalization. So it means that dollars aren't available for um, serving kids who may need an institutional setting for short terms. Um, right now, of course, we, we are using crisis centers, which are helpful, and we just don't have enough of those either. Okay. All right. Now, before we close out, and before I get to the very last question, can you go over the fact that, or what you stated earlier in so many words, that uh, when people go through grief, it is not outsider's job to tell them that they need to get over it absolutely you know yeah can you break that down a little bit more or or repeat what you said earlier yeah i probably cannot repeat what i said earlier but what i can say is your grief experience is your walk no one can tell you how to take that walk but they are more than welcome to journey along with you and so it's important to remember that grief is a process only you know what that process is going to look like there are what people call stages, but the stage doesn't mean that you come to the end of it and you never experience it again. It means that those you might experience those things more than once. So you might experience guilt more than once. You may experience being in shock more than once over the loss of someone or something. Um, it's important to remember that as you grieve, you 
are honoring the experience that you have shared with someone. That experience is called love. And so it does hurt. But we come to a place where we learn and adapt to living with the loss of that love physically. And we operate in a place of living with the love that we've shared. So we don't actually lose that person, right? We just learn how to live life differently without them here. Last question. If you could put a billboard up in any city, where would you put it and what would it say? You know, um, I'd probably still choose Topeka because it's where I am. And so I want to see my community healed. Um, And if I had words to put on it, those words would say, choose you. And the reason why I say choose you is because no matter what you're going through, whether it's grief, whether it's loss, whether it's mental illness, um, physical illness, whatever the journey is, no part of the journey leads to success until you choose you. You have to choose you to begin anything. It starts with you whether it is choosing to get up in the morning, choosing to follow a routine, whatever it is, it's about you choosing you first. That means there's no one and nothing I'm going to put in front of me. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to choose to uplift me. I'm going to choose to be encouraged. I'm going to choose to walk in positivity. I'm going to choose to connect. Whatever it is that you're experiencing, you get to choose, but I want you to choose you. That's all for today's episode of Black Mentors, a production of Voiceland Media, LLC. Thank you for listening, and thank you once again to my friend, Felicia Glass, for joining me today. Make sure you join us here every day in the month of February as we ask, listen, learn, and invest in the knowledge and truths of African Americans from all socioeconomic backgrounds. Make sure you follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and please subscribe to the podcast on Anchor.fm, Spotify, Apple Music, or any of your favorite podcasting apps. Stay tuned for a new episode every day in the month of February. And once again, thank you, Felicia. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. See everybody tonight.